good evening, Axel. Uh, long time, haven't heard each other. I think Carrie was. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, I, I, I think Carrie was was the next. You go ahead, Wardle. Go. Oh wait, it's only a quick thing afterwards. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I have a fascinating story about the history of Ukrainian aviation for you, uh, for today, and a little bit of the next. Uh, I don't know, thirty minutes. Uh, if we have a little bit of time, I would be pleased to guide you through the beginning of Ukrainian aviation and uh, you will get 100% why Ukraine is that skillful in creating all of that drones with the wings, drones with the propellers, drones with, I don't know, they're just uh, water drones, under the water drones, wheel drones and so far so far and so on do we have any other topics that uh, uh... no 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 we want to go all full sikorsky okay ah, sikorsky is just is just is just part of that fascinated fascinating story uh but not the only one so uh, everyone knows about the owner of the world records the maria plane I don't know why. Tell me why you know about Maria. Maybe because the space is called Maria Report, right? We're dreamy people. Yeah, that's because we are. And this plane was unfortunately bombed by the Russian bastards in the air airfields of Gostomel. Or the uh, general public also is aware of the Ruslan heavyweights lifter produced by the Antonov plant then some kind of um, USSR Batnik followers that we don't have usually at the space would say, but what is Ukraine here about? Uh, because everything of that, uh, the, everything what Ukraine nowadays has uh, was created or presented to Ukraine by USSR, uh, they would say. No, it is not. So now we will together uh, take a look at the entire path of the aviation development uh, from in Ukraine, from bicycles with wings to the world record holders, and also talk about uh, why, despite the destroyed Maria, Ukrainian aviation has the chance uh, to be fully re restored and become a successful industry uh, again, despite but not because. Let's call it. Let's call it. Um, so everyone probably knows that the first flying machines that people learned to launch uh, back in the fifth century before Christ, uh, and where the kind of uh, where the kind of uh, machines. Uh, how to call it, uh, it was in the lands of where the modern China country is called, and those uh, those devices were called kites, and they were looking like a dragger, dragons. Um, <clears throat> and in those times, I just if you give you if to give you a perspective of what was happening on the lands that uh, at the same time that are called today Ukraine. Um, it was the period where the Skisians uh, ruled in that lands that are called today Ukraine. So, knowing uh, by that that the first machine that flied in Ukraine 
why it was called they, those machines those airplanes they were called dragons because of that so regarding the attempts to fly by jumping from a height um the first known successful jump was and probably there were many unsuccessful but the history doesn't doesn't really focus on that because history remembers the first uh, successful jump was made in 1632 by Ahmed Chalabi who jumped from the Istanbul's uh, Galata Tower and flew over the Bosphorus uh, on the wings of his own design and another Turkish traveler and a diplomat told us the story about that. By the way, that uh, diplomat and the storyteller was making uh, the uh, was making also a lot of contribution to the history of Ukraine by uh, from his historical studies. We can also remember that uh, at the same time uh, they were uh, he was calling Cossacks and female Cossacks and kids Cossacks as a different uh, nationalities living in uh, Ukraine at those time in his historical studies. <clears throat> so, skipping through the era of Zeppelins and uh, focusing on uh, the first airplanes, we find ourselves in 1903, when the bicycle engineer brothers, uh, Wilbur and uh, Olive uh, Orville Wright first took uh, to the air their invention of an airplane. It was far from Ukraine, as you probably know, it was in the USA. And after four years, the Frenchman Paul Cornu took off from the ground in his first flying machine. And just with a year after that, in around 1908, the first Iro Club of the Russian Empire appeared in Odessa. Yes, in those in those time, it was part of the Russian Empire. But the magnitude of the years 1903 uh, states 1908 uh, lands that are called to the Ukraine uh, before it was called Russian Empire Odessa. The the ideas, the invention, the 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 intention to uh, make the machines fly was always in the air, let's call it like this, independently where it was, States or Ukraine. So the first uh, club was created in Odessa and, and the whole commander of the military district general Alexander um, Kalbars uh, became its president. So the cause received pretty strong support. The goal was to make an airplane of its own design, uh, that was the first uh, direction. The other direction was to purchase uh, the uh, footprints uh, and and make based uh, on the French uh, footprints uh, the uh, their own production. And the third was a direction was sending to France. Uh, for the expense of the uh, Odessa Motorcyclist Club, Motorcyclist uh, Mihailo Efimov. And he was learning uh, the pilot uh, topic, to pilot stuff directly from Henri Forman, uh, from Arli Ar Ar Henri Forman himself. So the man who made the first plane, uh, the first controlled flight 
So you can see the global connection of the ideas and how people were connected to each other. The one who was in Odessa, uh, those type Russian Empire Ukraine, just simply uh, starts uh, learning the topic from the one who made the first control flight, Andrei Farman. Not like after when the Bolsheviks came and the Iron Curtain and, the, and, and so far and so on. So, uh, the first man in Odessa who was uh, lifted into the air during the demonstration flight was the famous businessman of Italian origin, local businessman, was uh, Artur uh, <clears throat> Anatra. And he uh, was the one who actually sub uh, succeeded, substituted the general uh, Kalbars uh, at the president of the IRA club. He was shocked and amazed to the core of his heart. And he organized an op open uh, aviation class. And by the way, then the school that was opened um, in 1911, which was transformed into aviation school at all, at the same time and uh, <clears throat> on the basis of the workshops on the uh, Anatra, after his name, uh, they were focused on, on, on their own factory, which uh, began to produce the airplane according to the French license and the French uh, footprints and French uh, drawings. <clears throat> and in 1910, uh, the aviation uh, officer school was established in Sevastopol. In parallel, uh, the Kiev Association of Aeronautics, it was called in that way, Association of Aeronautics, was developed uh, in Kiev. Mm, in 1906, at Kiev Polytechnic Institute, Polytechnical Institute, the aeronautics uh, department was founded. This is the same Kiev Polytechnic Institute that was founded uh, for charity donations uh, for many uh, industrial uh, maniacs, including uh, the uh, the Lazar uh, Brodsky. Remember, we talked about Lazar Brodsky uh, earlier. He was the one who... We talked about the good capitalists who actually managed to then give back to society and spend well on education exactly he was the one who uh, who uh, donated for the key polytechnical institute because they needed a qualified uh, qualified uh, qualified personnel qualified workers to be educated he also donated uh, in brodsky synagogue construction and the Bessarabian marketplace that uh, we can find even these days in the Kiev city center. All of this is still present to our days. In 1909, the Kiev Aeronautical Club was formed uh, on the base of uh, Kiev Polytechnical uh, Institute, and it was pro providing the serious scientific base for the field of aeronautics. The people of Kiev uh, bet on their own products development, uh, and projects uh, rather um, than uh, it was in idea uh, to uh, purchase uh, the uh, the footprints uh, like uh, Odessa uh, School of Aeronautics were, were doing. So the first... Come on, come on, you're leaving out people. You're leaving out Bilinkin, Jordan, Sikorsky... Kazyanenko twins, brothers, come on. Wadogo. Yeah. 
the first one of the first helicopters in the world was designed exactly there exactly exactly uh, so the one of the uh, one of the first uh, designer uh, was the teacher of this Kiev Polytechnical Institute was Alexander Kudashev uh, representative of the uh, Nogai family which has roots in Ukrainian history since the uh, 18th century and the plane was called Kudashev 1 uh, it rose in the air on the territory of uh, Siretsky Hippodrome. This Siretz is the district in uh, Kiev, and it was it it flew for thirty seconds. So, uh, aeromodeling at those time was not like a super expensive field based because like of types of the materials that were used, but the engines has to be imported from abroad. And uh, Kudashev uh, developed his uh, this this direction with his own funds funds because he uh, became from a rich family and he has a family of pro uh, professor uh, he 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 is coming from the uh, rich family and his salary of the professor professor of the Polytechnic uh, Institute was allowing him to do so. In fact, the professor was only thirty years uh, thirty eight years old at those time. And many of the audience who were gathering and the, at the test, uh, they were <clears throat> test flights. They were considering him to be a student. Uh, in fact, many students of Kiev Polytechnical Institute were so talented that they could uh, give a wealthy professors a big head start. To be honest, <clears throat> for instance, Fedor Tereshenko. Uh, from the family of the famous uh, sugar maniacs, Tereshenko. Tereshenko are a famous fam family in Kiev. They were also making charity for uh, so many, uh, so many uh, different uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, different facilities in Kiev. Uh, and actually what he did, he was, uh, he was buying himself an airplane and then, uh, in his native village in the Zhitomir uh, region, he built his own workshops and hired about two dozen, uh, qualified craftsmen and designers to materialize his own flight fantasies over there. Uh, the chief designer and co-author was, uh, Dmitro Hivergrigorovich. Uh, he also was a grad uh, graduate from the Kiev Polytechnical Institute, and um, after working with Tereshenko, Rihorovich uh, became interested in the design of flying boats. It was called at those at, at those time. Uh, those are the hydroplanes, how they were called in those days. The aircraft of his design was the first in the world to perform at that death loop. And during the First World War, Hevorovich designed uh, the, the one of the world's uh, first plane that could carry the torpedoes. Um, <clears throat> in this Kiev aviation uh, topic, uh, where not only the professors, but uh, uh, also the high students. One of them, the Danilo uh, Karpeka, was from the family of... Uh, uh, sugar factory maniacs and of the age of 16 he developed a project of his own plane and at the same time uh, as uh, we, he, we, he was doing his project in parallel with Professor Kudashov. 
he didn't dare like uh, Kudashov to build his own uh, workshop, but he ordered the construction of his and three more planes to a talented student of Kiev Polytechnical Institute, Mr. Ihor Sikorsky. Talented student of Kiev Polytechnical Institute. I bet you have heard one day this name uh, in the helicopter area. Ihor Sikorsky was the son of uh, the uh, psychiatrist, not a sugar factory man yet, like the others were. Uh, but he had his own workshop. Sikorsky was obsessed uh, with the helicopters, but at the beginning of his career, he designed and built the air, air aeroplanes uh, for um, uh, on order because uh, it was the more reliable business. And by the way, the bis Two aircraft developed by him was the second in the Russian Empire to take off from the ground and then land successfully, which is also important. Uh, it happened in Kiev in Kurenivsky, Kurenivsky uh, field. Kurenivka is the <clears throat> uh, Kurenivka is the uh, district uh, in Ukraine, uh, in, in, in district of Kiev. Uh, that's how Ukraine is connected to a world-famous uh, name of Sikorsky. Then, uh, after the Bolsheviks have arrived in uh, 1918, he would emigrate uh, to uh, to United States, and he would uh, he will he will he will found 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 the. Uh, the world famous uh, company, uh, uh, which is uh, called after his name, Sikorsky, um, ear production company. Um, <clears throat> so, Kiev Aviation School began, began to train pilots and mechanics and build its own, uh, and even built its own airfield, air base. And Kiev became, became the place of the powerful aviation experts in the entire uh, Russian Empire and later played an important role that we will touch in a moment in, in also in Europe as well. Both uh, aero productions in Kiev and Odessa gained uh, momentum and in 1913 they were mass producing airplanes. Uh, Odessa and uh, under uh, you have to tell people what mass producing or mass production looked like at that point in time or what it meant. 80 how, planes how, per month. Exactly. That's not bad, is it? If you think about it. Yeah, exactly. Another interesting figure uh, in the Ukrainian uh, hi history of aviation uh, school was Levko uh, Matsevich. His life unfortunately ended uh, in a disaster uh, uh, in 1910 at the air show in St. Petersburg, but his death created another invention. For instance, uh, deeply affected by the death of the pilot, Poltava-based uh, resident Gleb Kotelnikov invented um, knapsack mechanism, backpack parachute actually, to save the pilot. Initially, the device was called an anti-fall device or something like that. But today we call it a parachute. I will leave a link uh, to Katelnikov's Wikipedia uh, while, while mentioning this topic. 
so everyone can go over there and check the whole history of this uh, of this device invention before his invent invention of the backpack i mean parachute was known but it was pretty complex construction that <laughs> it was not really convenient to take into the plane and to use uh and to use uh, in 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 the aircraft let's call it this way because of the weight because of the complexity and because of the construction it was mainly like an umbrella something like uh, and after uh, Kotelnikov, the backpack parachute was uh, was uh, was used, and 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 parachutes start being used to uh, to as a brakes uh, overall as as a technology. In the with the beginning of the First World War, you can imagine that the military orders for the aircraft really poured. Uh, into uh, poured into the production in a huge volume, and Odessa, Kiev were ready for it. In 1916, the Odessa factory, uh, inviting the French engineer De Camp, launched uh, its uh, Anade aircraft and produced where where capable uh, their capacity was up to 80 aircraft per month. So you can imagine, like. 80 aircraft per month, you can do something, right? In a new Matias uh, plant was also built uh, uh, in the city of Verdiansk. So uh, when the city was captured uh, by Nestor Machno during the, uh, the uh, revolution uh, events in Ukraine, uh, the Machnos armed uh, formation, formations, they actually obtained the aviation at their disposal. That's like <laughs> Nestor Machno was having an aviation, think about it. Uh, mass production uh, required spare parts and demand quickly found an investment. In the modern city of Zaporizhia, the Swiss, French, Russian joint stock company Dufon Konstantinovich & Co. created an enterprise that produced aircraft engines and was local adaptation of the German Mercedes. Yes, yes, today we know this company under the name of Motorsic. Uh, during the period of the First World War on April 29 uh, of 1918 on the lands of today uh, called Ukraine as the result of Kode uh, Etat, Pavlo Skoropatsky took power in Ukraine. Skoropatsky was a general, he was a military officer and he perfectly understands the importance of the development of aviation. The Odessa Anatra plant was used to produce the aircraft for the Austrian army. Under the Hetman uh, regime, Ukraine uh, received a new center of aircraft construction in addition to already existing Odessa, Kiev, Berdyansk, it was Kharkiv. So now you understand why uh, the Russian myth about Ukraine uh, receiving all the industrial footprints, everything from the USSR is just a myth. We will find out in a little later what the hungry Bolsheviks did to all of these enterprises, actually. With the defeat of the First World War and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, another state appeared on the map that was uh, that is today part of uh, Ukraine's sovereign ter territory, but, but at those times uh, it was called Western Ukrainian People's Republic, which also developed its aviation. December 1st, 1918 is considered the day of its foundation. The commander of the air department was Petro Franco. Yes, 
the son of the famous philosopher, scientist, writer, and creator of the first Ukrainian political party, Ivan Franko. Exciting, right? It is worth noting that with the rise of the Bolsheviks, all the aviation enterprise were nationalized and foreign investments were stolen, just like in all the other areas which we together learned about earlier during the debunking the myth that it was the USSR that gave Ukraine all the industrial footprint. In fact, USSR have stolen uh, all of that from local and foreign investment investors and for me like is the biggest mystery how everybody uh, let it all simply go by the way mr sikorsky uh, whom we mentioned earlier emigrated at those time to uh, america in 1918 where he founded the, uh, the famous sikorsky aircraft company in 1923 but the Bolsheviks also understood the importance of aviation. So these enterprises were not like fully robbed and destroyed like many others, but continued to work on the Bolshevik leadership. Also on the basis of the existing enterprises, uh, planes were produced for so-called Ukrpovitria Shlach, so Ukraine air connection, if I translate, so like Ukrainian passenger communication system between cities Kharkiv, Poltava, uh, Kiev, Korpivnitsky, which was called, uh, I don't remember how it was called Korpivnitsky, but it's some weird Soviet name, I don't recall already. So Kharkiv, Poltava, Kiev, Korpivnitsky, and Odessa. Uh, those cities uh, in the time of 1920s were already ear connected one to each other for the passenger communication. Unfortunately, under uh, the new so-called uh, so-called leadership, the aviation enterprises of Odessa and Berdyansk collapse. Who were, however, the Kharkiv aviation industry developed at the powerful pace. Josip Neyman, uh, with the help of his students, designed uh, and built the first high-speed passenger plane in Europe in his free time. He used a completely new design of a, a landing gear that were removed during the flight so like collapsing uh, uh, landing gear was exactly the inno innovative uh, design that was created by those guys the innovative aircraft with uh, folded um, with uh, folded uh, this kind of wheel ears <clears throat> and they were in uh, were launched in the mass uh, production in Kiev, uh, which located still in the in Kiev till to this day. Um, as while preparing, as they were saying, was the Bolsheviks were saying to take over Europe, the Soviet Union didn't forget that the military aviation needs a specially trained military personnel. Therefore, they were developing the topic of aviation construction in every possible way. Uh, that is the leverage they got from the previous time they were developing understanding uh, <clears throat> understanding the whole importance. Um, coming closer to the modern history and uh, history of the aircraft engineer Antonov, uh, 
uh, it began with the destroyed aircraft production facilities during uh, the Second World War and the decision to move the production deeper into uh, USSR territory to Novosibirsk. It was the Russian guy Oleg Antonov uh, who was given the task of developing the AN AN aircraft, the name of which even today uh, means uh, the uh, means a lot in the aviation uh, industry, uh, including Ukraine. Uh, this is how the AN uh, planes are called Antonov. And the first aircraft developed was the famous AN-2 plane, uh, but it quickly became clear uh, that Novosibirsk, in Novosibirsk, the situation with the access to the highly qualified personnel is not the best because the main specialization of the lands uh, of those time uh, of Siberia was mainly the Gulag, but not the uh, air production and not the aerospace. That's why uh, the production was uh, moved uh, where there was the highest potential uh, for the uh, availability uh, of highly qualified professionals. So the production was moved in Kiev. And the modern history of Antonov was exactly uh, around uh, Kiev and the uh, construction uh, engineering bureau and making all of the of the footprints and sketches of the planes and uh, that was the the, the 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 closer to the modern story around Kiev and the new era of aircraft construction was uh, the new where the new technologies of the Rolls-Royce jet engines uh, to which the USSR got the access after the war and after that they, they were scaling, 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 and scaling all of the uh, ability and capabilities uh, they were producing. Uh, they were producing the uh, uh, known even today part of the Soviet uh, airplanes that are called after the Tupolev, after uh, after Antonov, after after many uh, Ilyushin and many others. Um, Maybe you would have time, yeah. whatever. Maybe you would have time that we can do a full segment on the very comprehensive and very important contributions of Ukrainian engineers and designers after the war to what was both the space program, the rocket design, as well as aviation. Because we're about to go and talk about missiles, and we can tie this in quite easily with what is Ukrainians' capability in homegrown missile systems. But we should really follow up with this uh, when we have a little bit more time tomorrow. What do you think? Will you be able to join us tomorrow at the same time? So we can start with this. Let me think about it. Uh, and let's let's try to do that. Because I'm on purpose uh, skipping uh, the story of military aviation, all of this Migoyan, Suhoi uh, story, because uh, my purpose of today <clears throat> is exactly to give you the fascinating uh, snapshot of uh, history of Ukrainian aviation and why uh, today uh, we are wondering uh, of Ukraine's capabilities to build uh, all of this uh, like new inspired 
pushed by the war technologies like drones uh, from the small hectocopters to the big one uh, wing uh, non-pilot planes and, and and so far and so on just simply it was always like that the story and history of Ukrainian aviation starting from Kiev, Odessa, uh, uh, Berdyansk, uh, Kharkiv, uh, that was exactly highly skilled uh, professionals coming from the uh, polytechnical uh, uh, universities, uh, started and driven by the need uh, of the industry, of the foreign investments uh, that were running the business and the lands that were called, that are called today Ukraine, uh, and having the need of highly skilled professionals, that was that is always always confirming uh, the, the the story that when you invest in the technology, when you invest in the knowledge, it always pays off. In Ukrainian case, paying off, even you remember charity, Kiev uh, Polytechnical Institute founded for, for charity of the, of the businessmen, it paid off by many talented aviation experts graduated, uh, graduating from there and uh, boosting Ukrainian aviation, uh, starting Ukrainian aviation history and then boosting being one of the most important uh, human resource uh, providers in the Russian Empire, but in playing significant role in Europe. That's the story I would like to I would, I would like to tell you today about Ukrainian aviation. And by the way, there are a lot of uh, interesting stories these days. So many uh, military enterprise and also aviation enterprise. For instance, the French producer uh, are in signing the, the intentions and contracts with uh, Ukrainian uh, industry in different types of uh, military and non-military production. Uh, and for instance, France is going also to assemble uh, in Ukraine its uh, its famous uh, drone. I just forgot the name. Apologize. And that one is confirming and giving you the background and the full uh, puzzle picture how it started and why Ukraine is that way strong in all of the aviation topic. Thank you so much. Hope that was interesting. Absolutely. That we are very, very um, much appreciated and uh, very good start into further um, flying objects. And with that, Fabian, good evening. Good evening. Uh, you can understand me well? Uh, you sound a bit far away. We've had this before. Are you sitting oh. on the other side of the table shouting into your phone? So I'm wondering because I'm technically supposed to have this is much a... Better. Um, this is much better. I don't know what you did. Okay, so this is really weird. Okay, no, no. Good that you tell me because I thought that my headphones had a microphone integrated, but apparently then they they don't or twitter is not recognizing um the mic on my my headphones but that's okay so i i know it and then i can just keep make sure that the, the phone or the yeah the phone is close to me and you can always shout <laughs> or that yeah <laughs> all right no, Fabian, thank you very much i mean as you just heard been uh, history of uh, ukrainian civil aviation and ukrainian aviation experts everything which flies, they've been extremely good. In one of our earlier discussions, and I just re-listened to it earlier today briefly, 
on September the 3rd, when Dolman, you and I spoke about this here, you spoke at the very end about the origins and the, the domestic production of the Ukrainian missiles currently being in use. Can we, because we wanted to talk about warheads today, can we talk a little bit about what the Ukrainians with their grim have actually produced and how powerful and how much punch power packing that thing is? Yeah, absolutely. We, we can start with that. Um, so, okay, so I, I thought this time, Alex, um, I, will, I will try my best to just keep talking um, until I'm either out of things to say or you interrupt me. Um, then, then maybe we, we don't have me <laughs> awkwardly asking. <laughs> Peter, Peter and I will interrupt you in between. No worries. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so um, there, uh, there's a really good small thread out there by, by John Rich who's, who's done a good job like really quickly outlining what the, the three main missile programs are. Um, that the, the Ukrainians have currently ongoing. And the one, of course, is, is very famous at this point, the Neptune anti-ship cruise missile that reportedly has, well, that has sunk the, the Moskva uh, cruiser, but that is also apparently or has been used in uh, land attack roads to take out land-based targets. So, so that is one of them. And uh, the Ukrainians are currently working on the Korshun land attack cruise missile. So that is a, another type of cruise missile that is designated or, or dedicated to, to engage land-based targets. So, you know, Neptune um, originally was conceived as an anti-ship cruise missile, while it has some capability against land-based targets. Uh, the, the Korshun, the land attack cruise missile is really built to engage these types of targets and most importantly at a longer range. So we have very little information out there on these programs, um, especially on the Korshun. Uh, it's, it's simply because we, we, we don't really know yet, um, you know, how far it is in the development and um, what would later will be the, the exact technical specificities, um, but probably the range or what the Ukrainians, what they're aiming for is, I would say, a range in excess of 1,500 kilometers. So really to provide Ukraine with a deep strike capability that can engage homeland targets deep inside the enemy territory. And, you know, that is, of course, something that would not be possible with the Neptune anti-ship cruise missile. Also here, we, we don't know exactly um, what the maximum range is. That always depends a bit on the, um, the trajectory that is used. You know, also atmospheric conditions. I mean, sometimes the atmospheric pressure is just a bit higher than other times. Um, altitude of release. So, you know, if they shoot it from a, from a mountain, uh, a small one could probably also increase the, the range a tiny bit. Uh, but, but overall, you know, probably it's more in the range of 200 to 300 kilometers. Um, and then, you know, with the land attack cruise missile that Ukraine is working on, you're really, really um, going beyond that. And you really try to extend the range of the missile by a, by a substantial degree. And then there's also, Alex, the, the short range or potentially even a medium-range ballistic missile that 
Ukraine is, is working on. Um, that one, uh, and here also we, you know, it's, it's, it's rather little information that we have on it. Um, it's also known under a lot of different names. Um, I've, I've seen, you know, like some, some called it the Zapsan, um, others. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Axel, my, my, my bad um, for, for, for calling you the wrong name. It's um, like sub instead of Subsun. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, yeah, good analogy. Um, absolutely, yeah. Then um, I, I, I will call it the the Chrome two, um, and and you know the, the Ukrainians can probably tell me how to pronounce that correctly. I, as a naive German or, or Westerner, unfortunately, have have absolutely no idea. Um, Anyways, yeah, the, the, the Ukrainians been working on that ballistic missile for quite a while. And it's quite funny. I do remember when I was working at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in the Berlin office. That was before I moved to the University of Oslo to pursue my PhD. I actually wrote a, a small piece um, for their for their missile dialogue initiative blog that they have. So also back then I was working on missiles um, because there was a very interesting ballistic missile manufacturing facility popping up in Saudi Arabia. And no one really knew exactly what, what it was doing there and what its purpose was. But there was some speculation that the Saudis built that with the, the help of the, the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians were interested in using that plan to manufacture uh, to, to manufacture the, the Chrome 2 a ballistic missile. Uh, obviously, I, I actually don't really know where that story went and in the end whether there was anything to it um, or if the, the Saudis were doing their own thing. It was definitely an active manufacturing facility. So, you know, there's like some signs that we can look out for. For example, there's a, a testing facility for solid fuel rocket motors. And, you know, when you burn rocket motors, the, the concrete usually gets gets black around where the, the fire is due to the oxidization. Um, and, and that's, you know, things that we saw. So we, we could definitely tell that it was active. Uh, but I, I haven't personally followed up on the story and I also haven't really heard anything. Uh, what, what I know is that it's uh, definitely something that the Ukrainians are still working on. I would say uh, if, you, if you look at the, the Chrome 2 and, you know, how it was, uh, the, the Ukrainians, actually, they, they or the, the company working on it, the manufacturer, they... Um, they displayed it at some, um, at some, what's it called, um, expos for, for defense equipment. And if you look at that, then it has a very, a very typical shape, um, as, as we see other short range and medium range ballistic missiles have. So for example, the Iskander M ballistic missile that, that Russia has used and, and still uses, but then also the Yunmu, um, uh, two and three that are manufactured in and by South Korean manufacturers. And they, they all have this, you know, like this typical shape. It's, it's quite a, a long and narrow warhead um, or, or missile tip. Um, 
where where below it is probably the, the penetrator and we can talk about that in a in a bit more detail later on but um when we talk about word effects but yeah in general it looks very much like you know a typical tactical ballistic missile or short or medium range ballistic missile that you you would expect the the, the big question um is you know how how far are the Ukrainians in terms of development when it comes to the Krom two and the Korsun land attack cruise missile? Um, and what I'm what I'm hearing, unfortunately, is is not that optimistic in terms of the development trajectory. So what I've what I've heard is that um, apparently you know it's it's more than the early develop, develop, developmental phase, um, but it's it's also still quite a distance uh, from from going onto the production line. And an issue here is because the program, you know, Fabian, the, the program was interrupted. Yeah, right. The program had been interrupted. Yeah, yeah, of course, um, of course, it was was interrupted, and then you know the moment the war starts, um, they they try to produce a, a crash program, um, and and that is that is ongoing, um, and you know there's a bit of a payoff, and we we talked about it last time briefly that if the Ukrainians were to accept. Uh, substantial assistance from Western manufacturers, then they could probably speed up the development of these missile programs quite a bit. But then you have the conundrum that you know that's something that, that that's a real threat and risk from from Ukraine. That later on the United States or France or Germany that they might uh, come in. And, and tell the Ukrainians that given that our manufacturers supported you to such and such degree and you're using American equipment in that missile, uh, we cannot allow you to strike target X, Y, and Z. And, you know, again, uh, we, from the outside, we, we don't know how much aid the Ukrainians are receiving, how much they're accepting. Um, if this is indeed a big issue, I would imagine that it is, but, you know, um, important to stress that it's also just speculation and in, in general everything that relates to these missile programs um i i would say un, unless you know you either you yourself have first-hand knowledge or, or maybe you know someone who has first-hand knowledge um i i would be i would be rather careful with with making strong statements um and so i'm also trying to to hatch my my words quite a bit here um, okay, that's, that's, that's I very think, good. At least an overview that I can give. But yeah. the thing is, it's it is not the design capacity. It's not the capability of the Ukrainians. It's actually the loss of time. I said it in a different context a little earlier today. There are things and processes and decisions you can't make up for in time. Industrial engineering has many of them. It's actually full of them every mm. single day. The interdependency and dependency process dependency is massive and uh, if you fail to have done something say three years ago you will end up in a dead end today if you have failed to do something two years ago um, you will not be able to develop the next stage now this is how it goes by the way this is what american british german engineering always had to fight with and that the long arc of design, development, testing, then production of pilots, and then thereafter mass production is so massive. 
And it's so hard to do. And if you interrupt the program, as Ukraine was forced to, due to, shall we say, budgetary, strategic, tactical, potentially even um, impaired by uh, internecine fighting, um, corruption uh, between Motosic, which was influenced, as we now know, infiltrated. It's at the very top, it was infiltrated by both Russians and Chinese. And <laughs> there's no surprise that there were areas of uh, Ukrainian engineering, critical infrastructure and engineering, um, as well as um, Ukrainian politics, which were suppressed by Russian infiltration. And this is why certain programs, despite the fact that Ukraine has the capabilities and the capacity, simply haven't advanced. So we shouldn't fault them. We actually should fault ourselves because we failed to protect that free nation. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what, what you said in terms of path dependency, uh, and that, that that's so true. And that's something that actually not just Ukraine is struggling with, but also really the all of the West as we're trying to to rearm our militaries um, through you know an industrial project is this this issue that once once your engineers have retired, um, once your your teams that were working together on certain things once they have been broken up, once these processes have been interrupted for a lot of time, um, something is is getting lost that is called tacit knowledge and and tacit knowledge that's the the type of knowledge that can really only be be conveyed through experience and mentoring uh, through working through on the job learning and it's what we you know it's it's an academic term but i think it's it's really useful also in everyday discussions and this can be contrasted from something that we call explicit knowledge uh, and that's the stuff that you know you you can read in books and this is how I know about missiles. You know, like I can tell you how a missile work works. I can I can tell you about the different warhead effects because uh, that's the type of explicit knowledge that I can read in a book. But that doesn't mean that I can build a missile. Um, because to do that, I mean, obviously, I would need probably like an engineering degree and, and a better understanding of physics. But you know, beyond that, even if you have like a, a physics student or an engineering student who has that kind of explicit knowledge already, it doesn't mean that you can tell him or her to like quickly get together and, and build a missile because there's there's so many steps that are involved that are simply very difficult to comprehend from the outside um, and and are very difficult to to repeat without proper mentoring and someone to really really show you and so yeah this is exactly what ukraine is struggling with right now they had this type of knowledge and um, to a to a substantial degree but given that it has not been put to use you know for we, we can talk about the reasons i think that that's not even that important right now the simple fact is that this tacit knowledge is gone and this is something that ukrainian manufacturers in a very ordinous process, they have to get it back. And that is not impossible, but it takes a lot of time. And I, I tied it in with the overall West because this is exactly something that, that we are in, in almost any country with a defense industry or even in civilian industry, that's something that we're struggling with. So for example, the United States, you know, um, at one point a couple of years ago, they were considering uh, restarting a production line for the F-22 because they realized that actually we might have too little of those. 
but very fast they realized that restarting that production line would be extremely, extremely difficult because, again, uh, engineers have retired, existing production lines were shut down, teams were broken up, and sure, uh, the, the people involved in these programs, they can read about that in, in fancy books and can get a, a decent overview, but getting back that, that deep knowledge about the topic that you need to produce these amazing airplanes, um, that, that is a whole different story. And very fast, Americans realized that this is not feasible, so they looked for alternatives. And, you know, in, in, in Germany, I mean, I'm pretty sure that if, if Germany, you know, in a, in a dream world that we unfortunately don't live in, but Germany was like, okay, let's let's uh, order 2,000 Taurus cruise missiles right now. Um, holy shit, MBDA Germany, they would love it. But I'm pretty sure they would have some difficulties getting a team together that can effectively carry out that contract. And, and that's, you know... Why it's, why it's so important also for the manufacturer, the defense industry in general, to, to have a steady uh, or have recurring contract. So they have some planning security. I think that's just something that got completely lost after the Cold War. And, and these are the things that we're now dealing with in this post-Cold War world that has suddenly turned very dangerous. Yeah, and the interesting thing is we know this from industry, as you just highlighted. Um, best example in Germany is the nuclear power industry where Germany is uh, yeah. losing now its um, edge completely and uh, the, it is a deliberate attempt to eradicate the know-how and the uh, know-how which Germany had in the 1960s and 1970s was world leading, world class yeah, yeah. and we just simply killed it but we killed it in consensus with the Soviets impacting our energy policy quite nicely. So what they've done is they've attrited our industry by making ourselves get rid of it and therefore then kill off our industry. It's perfect. From, from their perspective, in terms of creating dependency, this is how it goes. The same thing is uh, uh, creating dependencies is what the Russian empire always wants to do. And Ukraine needs to resist that. The biggest problem which they have as to the tacit knowledge, and this is one of the key aspects, and you mentioned this the first time you came onto our space. The key element in this regard is, of course, people. And who, unfortunately, dies in wars? It's people. It's the good people. It's the ones mm. who are intelligent. Mm. And, and, and everybody, intelligent, dumb, whatnot, everybody gets killed. But the loss of the engineers is massive. The loss of those who are aspiring future engineers is astonishing. The, uh, the loss of the professors, the technical designers, the uh, technical, technical drawing capable people, all of this, the, the, the craftsmen, the people who have been uh, drilling things in, in uh, facilities, all of this, the breakup of this fabric is what the other side wants. They need the Ukrainians to die. That's what they want. And this is why this war has to be turned around as quickly as possible. And you cannot wait for Ukraine to build its own weapons as much as they can contribute. Yes, but you should not. You must not wait for it. You have to give them what they need in order to prevent for those who live in freedom and can in future contribute to freedom and freedom, the free industry better to be dying like, by the way, Brits, French, Belge, Dutch, Germans, and Americans did in the First World War. 
were the crown jewels of the end of the industrialization. The social fabric was ripped apart. Wars like this are terrifying, and the Ukrainian war needs to be brought to an end by means of a quicker victory, which requires more missiles. Fabian, what kind of missiles do we need? <laughs> um, all of them uh, are right now, ideally. Um, no, I mean, this is... You know, you're so correct. Um, I, this war is absolutely horrible. Uh, it's, it's terrifying. And so many people are, are dying and, and also needlessly because we just keep hesitating in terms of what we provide Ukraine with. Um, on, the, on the question of, of how many, uh, what kind of missiles do we need? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy. Um, the, the, the first answer is just as many as you can get. Because modern wars, there are missile wars. They are one of the, the principal tools of contemporary warfare. And something that, you know, prior to this war, I've, I've been screaming more or less in, into a void. But I think, unfortunately, that has become very clear that you will not be able to effectively fight a major war between um, you know, two somewhat symmetrically powered states without access to a sufficiently large missile arsenal. Ideally, of course, you know, you have different types of missiles which are with different types of, of ranges and warheads to produce different types of destructive effects to really match the target. I mean, you know, ideally, um, you, you don't, of course, you don't want to produce underkill, um, but ideally you try also to avoid overkill. So it's always good to have the flexibility. Um, that, that's probably something, you know, that American decision makers can really grapple with in depth as they think about how to confront China in a potential great power war. I, I would say for Ukraine, it, it's a lot simpler, you know. Um, give them Storm Shadow, give them Sculp, give them Attackums. Uh, given their, their domestically manufactured ones, given Taurus, maybe given Chasm, if the Americans so please, uh, would be great, of course. I, I, I probably think, you know, uh, some long-term options would, would include Slam ER, which is a bit lighter. It, it's more like a medium-heavy uh, cruise missile compared to Storm Shadow, which is, you know, more on the, the heavier side. So I, I think for, for Ukraine, the absolutely the most important thing is numbers, numbers, numbers. Capability of these different types of missile systems, uh, of course, also comes in to some extent. But I, you know, if I talk to people, I, I, I usually say it's like a 90-10 thing. So it's really 90% about the numbers, 10% about the different capability profiles that these missiles offer, because in the end, most of the targets that Ukraine would be interested in striking are above ground, um, are relatively compact. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, most missiles can do the job, even if they are originally intended for other tasks and purposes. Um, but yeah, so that's that's it for for Ukraine. Give them what you can, and I'm sure they will make good use of it. 
I would say, you know, if it really turns out that uh, Ukraine gets the, the M39A1 attack M's variant, which is armed with a cluster ammunition warhead, that is a specialized warhead um, that can actually be really, really useful. Um, so in that sense, you know, here capability then becomes more important and here capability, this additional capability that a cluster ammunition warhead can offer really can provide a qualitative edge. But again, and I, I repeat myself, the most important thing is to make sure that Ukraine retains a standoff strike capability or a long-range strike capability in the medium and long term. And how exactly you do that and what type of missiles you provide Ukraine with uh, to, to get to that point is of secondary importance. Um, we just need to get there. Good point. Now we have a couple of hands up, Fabian. Let's just uh, interrupt yeah. here for the moment and then we'll go back. Um, Absolutely. Hop and then David. Hi, Fabian. Fancy, wonderful stuff you're putting out here. Uh, your depth of knowledge is uh, stunning. Quick question. Uh, am I wrong to think that the uh, enhanced Neptune that seems to have the extended range uh, might in a lot of ways resemble the capabilities of a SLAM ER um, or at least the SLAM ERs of five, ten years ago? And I'll, uh, I'll listen. Uh, yeah, um, so, I mean, we, we don't know exactly what the Ukrainians did in terms of their modification uh, for Neptune. Um, I, sorry, can I can also follow up? Are you like, uh, are you asking about the, the land attack uh, capability of Neptune and the, the modifications they did to, to achieve that and how that resembles LAMER? Well, yes, I think uh, it it appears to me and some of the things I've been looking at and they're none are verified, of course, uh, that the, uh, the boosted version of the, uh, Neptune, um, the, uh, ground launched version seems to be approaching sort of some of the ranges, uh, of the, and, uh, Turcom capabilities of the, uh, of the slam ER. And, uh, I, you know, I was just sort of, you know, holding my thumb up and measuring the two, it seemed like the Ukrainians have found a way to uh, to do a, a, a very decent, if not as good as uh, uh, version of their own version of a SLAM ER. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of range, um, I, I honestly say there are probably better people to ask than me. Um, I know, you know, like... It, it, there, there are some nerds out there that can, you know, measure the diameter of those missiles and the length and then can give you an approximate range uh, that this missile is able to travel. I'm not one of those people. I would say, you know, like if you want to extend the range, a relatively easy way to do it is simply to extend the booster. So uh, for, for those, maybe if we, if we take a, a step back, um, a booster... You know, we, last time we talked about the different types of engines that are used in missiles. And most cruise missiles, or virtually all cruise missiles nowadays, with a couple of exceptions, they use an air breathing engine. Most of them a turbojet, which is essentially a miniature uh, jet engine that is also inside the Neptune. And the, the problem with these engines is that you need, uh, you need some speed 
um, around mark 0.6, I think. Um, but but it's been a while that I, I read up on that. But you need substantial speed before the air breathing capability of those engines can come in um, and, and really, you know, start to propel that missile. So this is why you need a booster. A booster is nothing than a, a small rocket engine that you put at the end of that missile. And that brings that missile up to speed in order for the turbojet engine or, or another jet engine to be able to take over and propel the missile for the rest of the flight. So now what you can do is if you want to extend the range of a ground launched missile is you simply extend the boost phase. So let's say instead of the missile being boosted for 4.5 seconds, um, you perhaps increase the, the boost length by 30, 40%. And now the boost phase is um, seven seconds. You know, it doesn't appear that much, but you have to take into account that if and when that happens, um, that the missile will be faster after the boost phase it will be higher after the boost phase under most most circumstances it will have saved some fuel so you know you can you can get some way in extending the range that way um so that is certainly possible that the ukrainians did that that they really just you know it's, it's a crude way of doing it but you just put a large booster at the end of the missile and that way you extend the range by some extent um in terms of getting the accuracy and the land attack targeting capability, there are basically, there's a couple of hypotheses out there on what they did. Uh, one would be that they found a way to integrate a GPS resist, uh, a jamming resistant GPS uh, receiver that you know provides the missile with pretty good accuracy due to GPS guidance. They might have been able to incorporate an altimeter and related software and hardware for TURCOM guidance, or they might have been, or and basically they might have been able to integrate uh, an imaging infrared seeker, which also provides some land attack cover targeting capability. Yeah, if, if you know SLAM ER as a missile, um, you know that these are exactly the types of uh, guidance measures or, or guidance subcomponents that SLAM ER uses. So SLAM ER is GPS capable, has TERCOM, and uses an imaging infrared seeker for, uh, for terminal guidance. So if Neptune, the, the enhanced Neptune version with land attack capability, if they manage to integrate all of these subcomponents, then this would certainly, you know, um, be, be one way of providing Neptune with very effective land attack capability. Um, also, if they just manage, you know, to either integrate GPS or TERCOM or imaging infrared seeker, that could also be enough already. Um, and again, you know, here we, we can only speculate. But sure, um, I, I would say, you know, you, you sure you can call it a, a mini SLAM ER, but it's probably also, you know, just important to point out that these are really the, the main... Um, or not, let's not say a mini slam ER, but like a Ukrainian slam ER. You could say that, but these are really, you know, not guidance mechanisms that are unique to slam ER, but rather that's pretty much the standard package. So GPS, telecom, imaging, infrared seeker, that's the standard package in terms of guidance that you integrate in 
uh, cruise missiles these days that are supposed to have a designated land attack role. Um, so yeah, I hope that that answers the, the question. I think we covered that. Thank Should we you. go on to Yeah, let's go to David. David. Yeah. yeah, hi Fabian. Um, <clears throat> fascinating stuff. So th thanks very much for being on the space, first of all. Uh, second of all, just a kind of a general question, really. So I, I was in um, Nipro for a couple of years in 1991, 1992. Uh, there, there is a lot of competency in that area. And I've been still been kind of working with uh, some people in that area. Um, so somehow it's... So somehow to me it's it's surprising that they haven't had more of their own domestic um, capability shown in this war so far so so the first question is why do you think that is first of all and second of all are, are there some sweet spots that you can identify within the existing let's say rocket engine program so I imagine that there's kind of control system stuff and also uh combustion and uh if you like uh, rocket engine stuff which is important um where where's kind of the sweet spot of the technology from the ukrainian point of view yeah so um i, I think we already talked about like i i would say like most of the the reasons why ukraine does not have more um, in, in terms of a, a land, uh, in terms of a missile, in terms of missile capabilities, I think we, we mostly already touched on these issues. So, you know, as Axel said, it, it could well be that there was some sabotage on, on, on the Russian side to try to take away that competence because Russia, they're scared shitless of like a, a competent Ukrainian indigenous missile manufacturing capability. So I would be absolutely, I would be very surprised if this was not, you know, one of the the more pressing needs of Russian intelligence activities in, in Ukraine to keep that capability low. Um, other than that, you know, it's probably underfunding with the end of the Cold War. I, I would assume, I, I don't know uh, the, the history here um, of Ukraine's defense manufacturers, to, to give proper insights, but I would assume that, you know, very similar to what um, Russian manufacturers face, that they, that in, in Ukraine, they saw a very sudden drop in order intake, which required them to lay off people, um, uh, to, to yeah. shut down projects, uh, which then again, you know, as I said earlier, that just makes you lose this capability to manufacture the, the tacit knowledge that is so important, it gets lost. And that is probably one of the, the, the key reasons behind it. I, I would also say, you know, like some part of it is, is probably mismanagement, right? Um, and, you know, here again, I, I don't know enough about Ukrainian society or the, the, the military industrial sector, but uh, I, I know a lot about other states and I know that there's always, there's a lot of mismanagement in, in these types of programs and, and in the broader manufacturing, defense manufacturing sector. So I would be extremely surprised if everything went very smoothly 
in the Ukrainian enterprise? Um, I, you know, I, I can give the answer here myself that no, absolutely and definitely not. And, and probably some mismanagement was involved that uh, sadly haunts Ukraine uh, right now. Um, what, what was the other question that, that you asked? Yeah, it was a bit more detailed. So but basically the, the thing was about um, engine size, more or less. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have, you know, in, in passenger cars, terms you have kind of a one liter 1.5 liter two liter so so and so forth but you have this with rocket engines in, in a, on a big scale and i know that in um, Dnipro they had specific capacity in or specific competency in certain areas and you know so that that the, the kind of thing is that <clears throat> so i don't know let me roll back a little bit um you have the control system, okay? Most most of that is software, and uh, then you have some kind of specific relation to the underlying chipset that you, that you're using and how the board's laid out and all of this kind of stuff. But um, you know, the, there's kind of a big elephant in the room, and and that's a bloody great rocket engine, right? Mm. And 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 so there are certain kind of physical. Um, capabilities that you have to have around rocket engine design that you can't really, I mean, it's not something you can correct for in software. So the software competency and the uh, semiconductor competency I know is there. Um, my question is basically around what limitations are there in terms of rocket engine competency and also if this has been destroyed somehow, then how would that be compensated for? Or maybe not. Maybe maybe it's impossible to. I'm I'm afraid I I don't have a, a satisfying answer here. Simply because I think that that would require very deep insights into the the manufacturing capabilities and probably also you know like a bit more historical knowledge about what Ukraine has historically done. Uh, in 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 the the whole rocket enterprise uh, that it was integrated in in the the Soviet Union. I know, for example, that Ukraine was very heavily involved, or, or Ukrainian capabilities and uh, engineers and Ukrainian intellect played a huge role in manufacturing the the SS eighteen Satan, which is the, the NATO call sign. Uh, I think it's known as the R36 um, in in Russia, which you know really is is one of those nuclear capable missiles that is the the backbone of, or for a long time was the backbone of the the Soviet and Russian nuclear arsenal. Um, so and 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 there they definitely did. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Again, I, I don't know for sure, but I I think they were actually involved in the engine program. Um, Kind of, I'm, I'm very sorry. I don't think I have I have a very detailed and useful answer to your question. I think there, that you have to might ask Ukrainians themselves that were at some point in, involved in these these programs. Yeah, you have another question or comment? I think David David has a follow up. Just, yeah. just a comment. Just, <clears throat> just a comment. I mean, you know, totally understandable. Um, 
you know, this is this is kind of the heart of the Soviet military industrial complex, right? So this is, I mean, I land I landed there in 1991, and you know, basically, it was a closed city before I got there. So mm. I can I was the first foreigner to land there, more or less, and um, so you know, there's a lot of competency there. Nobody really knows anything about what was there, and that's the, you know, that. That that that's kind of the the joker in the pack, if you like. You know, we don't really know how much competency is there still. I've still been working with a few people um, from those areas, and so I know some some things about what what competency is there. But I I only really know from the control system side. I don't know about the rocket engine side. So that was kind of my background i know that they had a, a joint venture with boeing for the sea launch rocket program but that you know that but that's all you know kind of we've seen videos so that's yeah. yeah 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 no, absolutely um yeah so probably you, you maybe even know, know much more about this than than i do so yeah yeah sorry to not be of, of more help there but um Actually, should we should we move on? I was just about to say, let's move on to the next one. Perfect. We've covered warheads. We covered a, a few missiles. You had more in store, and you had a few tweets out. I did, yeah. So I I posted a a thread today, um, which is really you know like some of the, uh, I mean that that's really some of the work that I I do more for my my academic research, but uh, once in a while. You know, there's something that I think is interesting to, to share with other people. So uh, that, that was how the, the thread came to life. Um, and that's really, you know, I was interested in the effectiveness of missile defense because, you know, prior to the war, and you can count me to those people, a lot of, pe lot of, a lot of individuals, um, knowledgeable individuals, they were quite... Uh, suspect of anyone saying, you know, that missile defense is in any way, shape, or form effective. And I, I think part of that relates that, you know, traditionally this debate about missile defense and especially ballistic missile defense, it is very loaded from the Cold War and the discussions and the context of strategic stability and nuclear weapons. And, you know, there's a, there's a really good quote. Um, I forgot by, by who it was, but it's basically this idea that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when you had the first group of intellectuals emerge that wrote and spoke about nuclear strategy in, in uh, acad academic and, and think tank settings, well, what is often said about these people is that their their one major and really big contribution, not just to the field, but actually to humanity as a whole, is that they managed to convince decision makers that missile defense is ineffective, not worth it, and actually highly destabilizing. Um, destabilizing because, you know, uh, for throughout the Cold War and, and potentially after, uh, we lived in a world of mutually assured destruction where both superpowers were very well aware that if they ever were to launch nuclear weapons first, there is an extremely high chance that you would get 
um, a nuclear strike in return. And, you know, there's this understanding that this probably deterred some of the most unhealthy, some of the most intense competition throughout the Cold War. And, and one reason why that was possible is because neither of the great powers or the superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, invested heavily in missile defense. And if they had done so, that would have been problematic because it could have while not negated the assured retaliatory capability of the adversary, it could have created the perception that assured retaliation is no longer possible. And that would have been very destabilizing on many levels. And, and so, you know, this is the, the world that we come